I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This afternoon, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Eamon Lynch, contributor for Golf Week. Sometimes show up on Golf Channel. You're, you're on there. What would you say that is, a contributor on Golf Channel? Uh, a recurring irritant, probably, but the best way to describe it. It's always a pleasure to be in the egg house. Yeah, we're coming here from uh, Sand Valley. Just got done playing Mammoth Dunes today. Played the Sandbox yesterday. He played Sand Valley the day before. What do you think about this new uh, Midwest uh, destination? The resort itself is fantastic. It's, you know, Mike Kaiser is about the only brand name developer in golf. And everyone knows what they're getting with Kaiser, which is a particularly elevated kind of golf. It's an elevated experience to be here. He attracts people who are particularly passionate about the game. And it's, he's done that at Bandon Dunes, obviously. He's done it at Cabot Links with Ben Callendor. And this place is a lot easier to get to than either one of those. So my guess is it's probably going to have a very strong future. I think they will announce the third course architect later this year. They already have two pretty darn good golf courses here right now and the sandbox. So it's already a great destination. Yeah, the proximity to Chicago, Milwaukee, Minnesota, Madison, yeah, it's by far the easiest of all the resorts. I think I think Streamsong, people say it's remote, but it's like 45 minutes from Tampa, hour from Orlando. That's a pretty easy one to get to, too, but it's uh, this golf course is it's a very cool place, and it's been amazing to watch it grow over the last couple of years. Like, I remember coming out here when they had nine holes open of the original Sand Valley course mm-hmm. and it was just a trailer and now every time I come back I feel like there's two, three new buildings. And none of it actually detracts from the golf which you don't often see at resorts. You, you can go to a lot of great courses early in their lifespan and then you see things get built up around them and in a lot of cases it tends to detract from the golf experience and as, as you see it abandoned Cabot here, the golf remains primary and nothing else that they add to the experience. While it adds to the general experience of being here, it does not in any way diminish or detract from the caliber of the golf. They don't line burways with buildings or, or get it in the way. It's not intrusive in any way. It's just interesting because I think with golf, everybody's always trying to do more to like make the game more interesting with their grow the game movement. And this is the, the model here is just like pure golf and nothing detracts or there's no add ons to the golf, like that are trendy or, you know, different like they aren't trying to do any gimmicks here. They're just putting the golf out and, you know, presenting the golf in a very elegant and 
enjoyable fashion. But that in itself is growing the game. When you look at what they're doing, you go to Bandon and they have the, the punch bowl, they have the preserve course, here they've got the sandbox. That is a template for what ought to grow the game around the country. The first tee has not grown the game, is not growing the game, and will not grow the game. But if you have a town that has something like the Winter Park Nine or the Sandbox here, or even a putting course, you, you drive through North Berwick in Scotland and you see the kids course there every night full until the sun goes down. And so what they're doing here is that kind of curiosity to a lot of golfers, but that's actually, I believe, the template for what could grow the game in this country is to have more kind of concentrated experiences, whether it's a nine-hole course, a six-hole loop, a mere putting course. That is how you grow the game, is to present the game with them. Stop dressing it up with this nonsense of teaching kids character and integrity and honesty. That's the parent's job. It's not a golf job to teach them that. And it's a, it's a cop-out to get behind these nonsense grow the game schemes that don't actually deliver anything. The PGA Junior Leagues grow the game because they're actually out there playing the game. That is the goal, is to get kids out to play. And you just don't need 18-hole golf courses to subject kids to that at the deep end. We need more ways to entice kids into the game early with a limited but kind of immersive experience. And what they're doing here is kind of the, the template that should be taken for growing the game in other towns and resorts and municipalities around the country. Yeah, I think so many golf courses should close across the country, but so many of them should look at... Do you have a list? I mean... Do you work on them all the time? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. <laughs> but a lot of them should close their 18 holes and look at, like, how you could do, like, the sandbox, which is you could do that on, what, 30 acres? Yeah. 40 acres? You could do... There's a, Mike Clayton, um, Mike Cocking, Jeff Ogilvie's group at Shady Oaks in Dallas, I saw, or Fort Worth, I saw. They have this nine-hole course. You could route it like nine different ways, or seven different ways. You could have a different little nine-hole golf course every day of the week. Like, And on that course, you could hit driver on holes. You can hit, you know. To me, you don't need 18 holes. You don't need 150 acres anymore. Like. You need just something that is that provides variety, that's fun, that's interesting, that is you know quality architecture, and and that's going to get people back. Because Winter Park is a perfect example. It is it's jam packed. They they've turned their business completely around. They went from a golf course that was losing two hundred thousand dollars a year to one that makes money now. And when you look at the actual cost to go and play Winter Park, it's actually just a nominal fee, even if you're not. A city resident. So you also have to look at the economics and what it costs to maintain a bad 18-hole golf course mm -hmm. versus uh, a pretty good nine-hole course and maybe a putting course or some other addendum to it. It's it's a lot cheaper and I don't necessarily think it would have a huge impact on revenue if it's done correctly because let's face it, who wants to play a lousy 18-hole golf course? But there are people out there I think who are looking for a better alternative that takes less time, costs less money, and where they actually feel welcome and their kids feel welcome or where women feel welcome. And that's not true of a lot of places in, in the country. 
it's cool here they're doing the five dollar for kids at the sandbox five dollars to go play their new six hole loop at sand valley it's like you know that's that's a good way you know to get kids out and play good golf i i grew up i got to play good golf because i worked at a really good country club like and i got playing privileges so i got to understand what good golf was and that to me is so important i i think if you play the better golf you play and the more you know good golf that's available to the mass public is is so important it, because it's one of the problems with american golf is how private it is and yeah. i mean you compared to where you're from ireland northern ireland <laughs> um that i mean it's a completely different model yeah and i grew up on a par three any single par three course near my home and I really should have taken it as an omen back then. I had a horrible slice and was out of bounds right on every hole. So I spent most of my childhood trying to protect my goods and services as I climbed over barbed wire fences to retrieve the only golf ball I had from the fields. But it cost the equivalent of about $4 to go play, and this is going back 25, 30 years. And my friends and I would go out there and we'd play four rounds in a row. It took us 90 minutes to go around. And that's what we did all day during the summer. And, you know, those things aren't particularly common, but, you know, every town and village in Scotland and in Ireland has a golf course. It's not necessarily going to win architecture awards, but people go out, they can go out and play in jeans. They're, they're welcome to do so. They're just going to go out and, and slap it around. Kids are going to go do the same. But at least it gets them into the game. And I don't feel as though that's necessarily a, as much of a culture trait within golf outside of the UK. I, I believe it is in Australia, at least on, on pros that I've talked to over there in my own experiences there. I think it's a much more open environment. But in the United States, there's, whether it's public or, or private, there is a tendency to, with the great courses, to build a wall around them and put up a sign that restricts who is welcome at any particular time of the day or night. So that's a culture that has to change if you really want to grow the game. But in this economy, bad courses are going to continue to close. So why not look for an alternative means? Why stick with the one model that is proven not to work? If your course is struggling, look for something else that might perhaps offer a chance at kind of remedying the situation. It's crazy that if you had a, say, a donut shop that was, I'd serve identical donuts to the donut shop down the street, and the donut shop down the street just, like, got more traffic than you to keep doing the exact same thing. Like, that donut shop owner would change what he's doing in some sort of, they're doing in some sort of way. Whether it's change a recipe, changes, but in America, it's all donut shop. In, doesn't have the same baker and what the problem you have in a lot of golf courses that certainly that in the last 30 40 years it's the same field architectural strategies that exist from one to the other they hire the same guys to go around making the same mistakes that they made somewhere else because they've never bothered to go back and see how their courses play in the field and whether or not anyone enjoys them i had a conversation with david kidd last week for a piece I was writing in Golf Week and he was flashing back 10 years when he was at the 
probably the top of his craft or widely considered to be then he'd opened a bunch of golf courses the castle course in scotland Tetherow, stonebray um, macrohamish dunes but he became very aware that his courses were winning much more in the way of awards than they were with fans because golfers kept telling him you know what it was beautiful i enjoyed the experience but it beat the hell i mean i'm not going back so if you have an audience that would even want to pay you a compliment would tell you they're not coming back that should indicate there's a problem and david eventually realized that he was off the path that he wanted to be on and eventually as we see here this week at mammoth dunes found his way back to it but that's a rarity among architects most of them continue building the same type of golf and, and offering the same kind of golf experience as they do everywhere else it, regardless of the demographic that they're trying to appeal to, the town they're in, the topography they're working with, it really is the Xerox school of golf course architecture. Yeah, municipal golf always seems to one, be the one that loses with golf course architecture because it ends up being boring. I, uh, I don't think the golf courses here are necessarily a model for municipal golf, but there's a lot of things that you could take away from what they do here and bring them. You know, the, you're never going to find a municipality that has like, you know, 20,000 acres of sand. Like that's not going to happen. And maybe not having, you know, 80 yard wide fairways that you have to, you know, maintain and cut is necessarily the best <clears throat> part. But having the corridors and the width that these places have is so important because, I mean, you've already alluded to your, your slice. It, it keeps you in the ballpark for a little bit longer. Yeah, I think the, the value here isn't so much the practical way you can move the sand valley model elsewhere. It's kind of the philosophical underpinnings of it. And I think what Mammoth Dunes does is blow out of the water this notion that there has to be an antagonistic relationship between playability and challenge. That a course that is challenging to skilled golfers has to be punishing to the rest of us, which is a nonsense. And Mammoth Dunes proves it's a nonsense because the contours and the width and corridors that will keep someone like me in, in the round, albeit not today, <laughs> is those are not the contours or targets that a plus two like you is going to look at. You're looking at a very different targets to try to work your way to the pin. And I'm out there on the edges just trying to stay in the game with the same golf ball I started with, that's eminently possible. I don't think you found it an easy golf course out there today. And that's the genius of this. You can actually have quality golf courses that don't need this kind of topography, but you also don't need the, the killer bunkers, the water hazards scattered at every turn. It doesn't have to be turned into some kind of medieval rack that you're going to stretch the golfer on for five hours. There are, that's the thing philosophical underpinning of Sand Valley as it is abandoned, but particularly here at Mammoth Dunes, that's what's portable in this experience. Yeah, I think there's like a big disconnect and I, I saw it at Trinity Forest and when you start to think about <clears throat> the idea of challenging golf versus hard golf. So like a single shot is challenging. It and especially at a course like Mammoth Dunes, it's out there. Like, I look at that golf course and I think, like, go birdie every hole. 
Like that's what that's what the challenge is out there. And this is where I think it all comes back to the the illusion of par and how people are obsessed with par. It's you know, on one day par should be completely different than the next day. If we play in a 30 mile an hour wind, the score of par is completely different than if you play on a dead calm morning the day after a big rain. Like the golf course is way easier the one day. So like, why is par still the same? But the idea of challenging and asking different questions throughout the round of players. And I think, you know, too many golf courses are too dependent on T-ball. Like, and I, I'd say my strength as a player is driving a golf ball. I like when they're tight when I play in competition. And that's my absolute weakness yeah. right now to the point where I might not ever actually play again. But th this is the problem here is that the challenge that it's asking of me mm -hmm. is exactly the same as the challenge it's yeah. asking of you. And that's to me the cookie cutter one noteism that you see in a lot of golf. It will present its challenge off the tee and it's going to offer you the opportunity to hit a difficult shot and it's going to offer me the opportunity to hit an impossible one. And the, the cost to you of a slightness is a lot less than it's going to be for me with a slightness because my margin for error is much greater anyway. And that's the, the, the problem I see in, in a lot of golf courses that if a golf course does not have options, it's not interesting and live or die are not options to me. And that's what you see in so many golf courses. You see it in, in Greg Norman's, in, in Jack Nicholas's golf course, in Pete Dye's, in Rich Jones. You see it time and time again. It's just the same absolute dearth of options that are, are being offered to guys. You can see the challenge that's being presented, but they're presenting the exact same challenge and severity of challenge to wildly differing ability levels. And that just gets boring. Well, it's the same question over and over again. It's hit it straight. I think, it, you know, I my most fun shot today that I played, I, I missed a green and I, I had a really awkward lie on like this sandy native area mm -hmm. off to the left of the green. I hit, you know, there was nothing in front of me on the way. And I could have hit a lob wedge, which was, but I hit like a little pitching wedge pitch like a, a chip and run out of it. And I kind of thought about it. It's like, if that was a deep bunker, it, I thought about the shot though for a while. And that is the fun of golf is figuring out what you're going to do, not being told what to do. That's also the fun part is figuring out what the ball is going to do after it hits the ground, mm -hmm. which we saw that at Trinity Forest when you were out there at the tournament. And how often do you actually get to watch tour guys have to worry about what the ball is going to do when it hits the ground? Um, I mean, I remember I had this argument with Chambly earlier this year when he said that drive of Dustin Johnson's at Kapalua, which was whatever, 400 something yards to kick in range, that it was the greatest shot ever hit. To me, the one and only interesting thing about that shot was what happened when the ball hit the ground, which was probably 90 yards shy of where it ended up and we just don't get to see that very often where the elite golfers are forced to consider the contours and what what's going to happen to the ball we see it on tour every week where the ball hits spins back to the hole but it's basically hit and stop golf which is just 
tedious beyond belief to watch. Do you think that uh, the venues, the PGA Tour, do you, how important is a venue to the golf tournament? It's important to the golf tournament in the sense that they need to be able to accommodate the infrastructure that exists for a tour event. It's important to all but about three or four tour players only in the sense of does it ask them to execute. They're not interested in a test of imagination. They are interested in a test of execution, and which is what separates this kind of golf here at Sand Valley from a lot of the other courses we see. But from a viewer perspective, I actually think it's quite important because you see this. It, it seems like the same event they're playing every week. It's the same guys at the same golf course being offered the same test. They're just going to hit it as far as they can, gouge a sand wedge from the rough onto the green, and either make the putt or two putt and carry on to the next hole. And you know, this, the guys on CBS or whatever are going to tell us you won't believe how difficult this shot is. Well, actually, we will because we see everyone else play it all day long. It's, it's almost like you're stuck in a groundhog day of watching lousy golf courses with boring golf being played. And that was what was so refreshing about. Trinity Forest, is that it was a great break with the norm. And that was a tournament that needed to do something to kind of resurrect itself. And there are ways you can do that. Zurich did it by changing the format. And suddenly people have forgotten that the tour players voted that the worst course on tour a couple of years ago. And now another course that they voted as among the worst on tour was the AT&T Oaks course that they used to play the Baron Nelson on. Which proved the cleanest TP the four season. Yeah, that was the wasn't that the AT and T Oaks course is at San Antonio. That's that's your boy Norman's Well, again, that's they they all met together. Texas. And the uh, the least least offensive thing about that is the fact that it's named for a corporation. Um, but you know, the Baron Nelson tournament found a way to suddenly make itself the most talked about event on tour this year outside of, say, the players and the Masters, because it, it found a way to move to a, an intriguing style of venue, and it took the risk of going with Gura and Crenshaw on that golf course. That draws in the tournament, and, and suddenly it's a very different experience from what we have been seeing, in, certainly on the Texas swing uh, recently, but even on the tour in general, there just aren't that many interesting golf courses out there. I, I think it's one of the probably the three or four best venues that the tour goes to year in year out already. Like, and that's not a competitive category of kind of tour venues for start. Well, I think what you alluded to that is fascinating is the idea of variety. When I look at the PGA Tour, it whether it's the format, the seventy-two hole stroke play week after week after week after week after week after week, yeah. or whether it's the golf courses that are, you know, eerily similar in just different states. It putting having variety, I think, is the they should they should love that idea and, and do everything they can to go to different venues, experiment experiment with different formats. And I mean if you were running the PGA tour, what would be the first thing you'd do? Probably ban Kevin Nam for slow play. <laughs> And, and anyone else who, who needs, you know, two, three minutes to actually hit a damn golf ball. 
Uh, I actually think you can, you can work with some of the venues that are out there. Part of the problem here is, a significant part of the problem is not the course, it's the setup. And the, the setup that the tour enforces every week is monotonous. It's asking the same questions every week of players on tour. So I think the tour itself bears some responsibility. It's not just on the architects here, um, or even the tournaments and their choice of venue, a lot of it is on the tour. Um, so th there is something they can do about that. I, I actually think they ought to. I think they should change some of the formats out there. I think the team event was fine. Um, there has to be a better alternative to the, the 40 odd tournaments a year where it is 72 holes of stroke play with uh, a mediocre field that might get a couple of decent names in there, but you have to get an extraordinary turn of events on Sunday afternoon to really get the viewing audience interest. And you just can't have this kind of mediocre product as often as is actually presented out there. And that is not exclusively the, the problem of the course, nor even, I suppose, the exclusive problem of the tour, but it's something that they can and shall address. The setup thing's interesting because something I know players were really excited about at Trinity was the variety in the par threes, you know, having the short little guy on eight yeah. and how every tour course seemingly is all 200 plus yard par threes. Just because there's a back tee at 200 yards doesn't mean they have to set it up that way. And Graham McDowell got ripped uh, by one of the Twitter trolls at Trinity Forest for taking a little bit longer than normal, because he's actually a very speedy player, uh, to make an up and down on the 17th hole, because there were opting options that Graham could have used to play that shot. And to me, the problem is not a guy who takes a little bit long to consider a wide number of options to execute a shot. The problem is every other week on tour, where the guy who's been presented with one option still takes an eternity to play the shot. And, you know, that to me is the, the biggest problem in the game, actually, is slow play. That's really what the, the tour could address. And, you know, I could tolerate bad golf courses being played quickly, but bad golf courses being play, played at an achingly slow pace is just intolerable as a product. And if you think about, like, what he was thinking about there, to me, that's where the broadcast sometimes misses the boat, is, like, the most... <clears throat> compelling aspect of golf is listening to a player and a caddy talk about a decision where they're talking about where they're going to land the ball, what trajectory they're coming in at, you know, what type of spin they're going to have on it because that, and that requires the broadcast to just not say anything. Yeah. I mean, and sit there and let the moment happen and then see what, if the player executes the shot, like, Getting more, like allowing that to happen more would be so, I mean, I think that's so compelling. I, I don't know if the regular viewer does, but that's how everybody can understand what they're talking about and see how good and how talented these guys are, where they're talking about landing at 150 or 148 at different trajectories with different spins. I mean, that's the talent of these guys. Yeah, but getting the announcers to actually know when silence is of more value than words i think is a bit of a struggle because ultimately they're paid to voice their opinions and 
nothing can be settled until those guys have had their say on it, it seems. But it's, there are a lot of times when it seems to detract from the moment of the broadcast. But again, I, I don't necessarily think you can legislate for the announcers. It, it would be nice if there was a little more awareness of what the viewer experience is. And I think that's also lacking quite often in, in the coverage of the game these days. So it's crazy. We're, we, we only have a little over three months left in the PGA Tour season. Mm -hmm. What's uh, been your kind of takeaways so far from, from what we've seen, you know, Masters, players, <clears throat> and just the overall season? You know, we're, we're about to hit the kind of the big, big events here coming up. What's, what's actually been surprising to me is how many of the, the biggest stars in the game have shown so much form this year, and yet we still haven't really had much in the way of those kind of toe-to-toe -to -toe shootouts that we're all aching for, particularly in an event that matters. I mean, there was a, certainly a dramatic finish at, at the Masters, but Reed wasn't particularly challenged. It wasn't a, a go-for-the-throat kind of experience there, but there were a lot of guys playing really good golf. And, you know, we've seen Phil win, Rory wins, Tigers, showing signs that he will win again, which had you asked me that a year ago, I would have thought you're kind of crazy to believe that. But I do think he's going to win again. And it's it's shaping up with so much promise. We just need one of those kind of era-defining tournaments which we haven't had in a very long time. Because to me, what, what the Tour is missing more than anything right now is a rivalry. And yes, you can argue that it's great to have a dominant player, which we don't have. And we have a lot of great players, but not a lot of dominant players. But go back, look for rivalries in this game. You have to go back to perhaps Greg Norman, Nick Baldo, 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago. Before that, you go back 40 years to Jack and Tom Watson. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's Annika and uh, Carrie Webb in there as well. But this game hasn't had the kind of rivalry that is fought out in the tournaments that matter. Nobody remembers Jack and Arnie, or sorry, Jack, Jack and Arnie, Jack and Tom Watson fighting it out in the kind of Andy Williams San Diego Open. They fought it out in the Open Championship and the Masters and the US Open and events that mattered. And that just doesn't seem to happen in this generation. The best players are very seldom the two going at each other on Sunday afternoon in the biggest tournaments in the game, and that's what we need more, I think. It seems like there's an, un, I've never, like, the parody is at an all-time high mm -hmm. in the game, where if I put the top 25 players in the world in front of you for Shinnecock, would you be surprised if any of them won? No, I think the pool of players, the pool of players who can win, the biggest events now is probably bigger than it's ever been. But in some ways, the pool that does win seems smaller and, and less impressive. It's, you know, it's it's a great career now to have one, a major. Jordan has three, Rory's got four. And they are, by some margin, the most dominant guys of that generation. Well, Tiger had a lot more than three or four at that point in his career, obviously. And you just wish that we could see someone 
stretch it out a little bit and see who comes with them. Let's find somebody who can add a couple of majors to their resume and see which of this generation has the stomach to make a fight out of it and elevate their own game. Because ultimately, a dominant player will elevate other folks. And you can look at tennis over the last 10 years and say, yes, Roger Federer is indisputably the greatest player who's ever played the game. But a lot of his career is defined by a rivalry against Nadal mm-hmm. or Djokovic. He, he elevated them. They at times surpassed him. But it made for a compelling year in tennis every single year. Mm-hmm. Those were the guys who were there in the terms that mattered. And to mm-hmm. me, that's our big loss right now. Basketball's got LeBron as like, you know, the undisputed greatest of this generation. But there's guys like Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, you know, th- that are pushing them. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not something that he automatically, and I agree. And part of me wonders, Tiger is the last dominant player. Will he be the last dominant player? No, I think that kind of thing is cyclical. I don't necessarily believe anyone will ever play the game again at the level Tiger did in around 2000, perhaps even in the mid-2000s, when he was just demonstrably way better than everyone else in the game. He knew it and they knew it. But I, I do think we'll have another dominant player. It just seems it's, it's a once-in-a-generation thing. I, I don't know who that's going to be in this generation yet, nor what will constitute dominance. Because you also have to remember that Tiger thoroughly skewed the perception of what the best player in the world ought to do week in and week out, because no one who held that dominant position before him ever did what he did week after week after week. And clearly none of these guys right now can do that. It's considered a hot streak if they play well three or four weeks in a row. Well, you know, do it 52 weeks in a row, as Tiger did in his prime. Um, so we see dominance, not at the level we did, but it would be a kind of a, a cheaper form of dominance, but somebody would get there again. I, I go back to the, the dominance of Tiger has diminished ever since Pro V1 and the real distance of explosion. Mm-hmm. And part of me believes that, I mean, technology has brought everybody closer. Not necessarily the the regular amateur player, but mm-hmm. from a high-level player perspective, there's no way you can't say that hybrids haven't allowed players to be better. And you know, then you know the greatest skill. Donald Ross said the greatest skill in golf is the, the ability to hit towering long iron shots, mm-hmm. and that was in 1900. If you talk to anybody about Seve or Jack or Arnold Palmer, what the, you know, one of their greatest skills was hitting towering long irons. So beyond everything, you know, the hybrid technology, TrackMan, all of this stuff has has contributed, I believe, to a a homogenization of the game. It's a slight bit. Yeah, I think it's it's dragged. It's not that it's dragged the best players down. I think they're still the best players. It's allowed a lot of mediocre tour players to have very nice careers where they can play and compete at a very nice level without ever ever actually having to be great. Mm-hmm. It, not that much has been asked of them. And the, the shots that separate the people who win tournaments and important tournaments are not demanded of players anymore. When you saw last year on tour, 
the longest iron DJ had been to any part war was a six iron. So once. Yes, and I, I don't believe DJ can't hit long irons. He obviously can. He's among the two or three best players in the world right now. He's not being asked to, mm -hmm. and his distance is such that he doesn't have to. And I, I do think that's kind of created this pool of players that is, is miles wide, but about a millimeter deep mm -hmm. out there when it comes to the, the the ability to separate themselves from the pack. I, I believe even if we have, at some point in the future, bifurcation or a ball rollback or anything like that, I still believe the best players will be best players at that point. What it will do is separate the also rounds who are skating by with technology rather than skill. I I believe like the top 15, 20 players will still be the top, you know, they will still be some of the top players in the game. Like they will, the top five will still be the five best players in the game. Where I think you'll see a shakeup is in the middle tier where and it goes back to what we were talking about with golf. Like I think that that the ability to drive the ball is is way overrated. I, I think, and from like a from a viewer standpoint, a game with heroic recovery shots is way more interesting than a game where it's just a tactical precision game. Or it's I like challenge you to find a single golf hound anywhere in the world who can remember a great drive seven bounce steroids ever hit. Yeah, but they. Can kind of chapter and verse of some of the short game shots that he executed over the years. Same with Tiger. You know, people remember the chip in at Augusta, and they don't remember a lot of the 350 yard drives because they all look the same. They all end up in the same place. So it's it, the challenge is cookie cutter, whereas it's much more situational and involves many more options and a wider skill set to execute the closer to the business end of the whole you get. And I think that's where the real joy of watching this game and the great players lies. What uh, what do you think of Aaron Hills last year? I, I That one I watched from afar, uh, happily so. I, I just thought it looked like a fairly boring golf course. I thought it was a, a, a rather nondescript major championship. Um, you know, I've always associated the U.S. Open with the one that makes these guys squeak in agony, and that one didn't, um, except for Kevin now complaining about the rough early in the week, which they then shut down. I I just didn't feel as though it did not have the vibe and the aura of a major championship. Bruce Kepka, thoroughly deserving winner, wonderful player, but it, it did not strike me as being kind of timber of the U.S. Open that you come to expect. Why do we hold on to this idea of scoring with the U.S. Open when the game's clearly changed? Well, that's, I suppose, a question for Matt Davis. I'm not on the USGA executive committee yet, although I keep hoping that someday I'll get the call. Have you applied? I do not own the Blue Blazers, so that might be a problem. Um, I don't necessarily think that challenge and scoring are one and the same. And perhaps the US Open folks do believe that, but I, I think Bruce Kepke would probably tell you that he found Aaron Hills challenging in last year's Open. But I'm damn sure there's a lot more guys who are going to tell you that Chinnikov Hills is challenging when they get there in a couple of weeks. And it's a lot of that comes down to 
the course setup. I, I believe the USDA should move away from this idea of power and the defense of it. But again, then you move into the idea of the, the equipment issues and the distance issues. It's a real Pandora's box when you just try to define challenge versus scoring. Because how do you rein in scoring or expand the challenge without getting into the way guys are able to overpower virtually any golf course? So then, do you have to grow in the fairways? Do you have to have rough that's waist high? You know, it, 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 everything seems to be interconnected in that argument. But it does feel as though there's a come to Jesus moment coming in that debate within the game of golf. Yeah, it should be a really interesting next couple of weeks with arguably like the two sternest tests in golf. I think you put Oakmont and Shinnecock are probably the two venues in U.S. Open rotation that you would say are the toughest tests of golf over time. And then you go um, for the Open Championship to Carnoustie, which has long been considered the toughest test of golf. It, it, I'm fascinated to see, you know, what Shinnecock will look like. You know, the fairways are much wider than what they were before. I don't think that's going to necessarily equate to better scoring. I think it will separate the field better. It will, you know, the, the cream will rise more with the wider fairways there because those players that are really on that are hitting their spots are going to, going to gain the advantage and, you know, when you get into these very, very narrow fairways with really thick rough, like, I mean, he had a great drive and catch, like, the side of the sprinkler head and bounce it into the rough. And mm. it's like, well, that wasn't, like, a, a bad drive. And <laughs> I think when there there's more width, like, the bad drives are still going to, if you have a bad drive with a wide fairway, you're going to still do terrible plays. Mm. But I think... It will be interesting to see if scoring is drastically different than uh, 2004. Well, Shinnecock is also one of those places that it really gets exponentially more difficult the closer to the business end of the hole you get. And, you know, it's got a pretty well contoured greens. They're as fast as ice rinks, typically. It's beautifully bunkered. And what's interesting this year, I just talked to Brad Baxton about it last week. He'd been up there for media day. And he said it was quite interesting. Actually, Curtis Strange, actually, he said how many of the areas around the greens that used to be just a gruff, which allowed you one shot to play out of it, which is hack it out onto the green. So many of those have now been shaved down into chipping areas. So I actually think this is an open that will separate guys who have that skill set close to the hole because they're being presented with options. Mm-hmm. and how to play it. And that's what I'm most looking forward to. I just say put everyone in the middle of every fairway and let's fight it out from there. You don't even need to hit your tee shots. You'd like that. Absolutely. I think it would be much more entertaining golf because that's what's going to separate the truly skilled players with nerves of steel than hitting drives into the fairway or just into the, the first cut of the rough and gouging it on from there. Let's put them around the hole and then see who's standing on Sunday evening. See, that'd be an interesting alternative event is it, if they did something where it was like a part three tournament, essentially, to see who is the best from 225 yards and in from all different kinds of places. Yeah, um, I think that's actually the, in a way, that's almost what the game has been reduced to. 
at this point because they all hit it the wrong way. It's not become particularly relevant where they hit it because it doesn't seem to diminish their ability to score if they're playing from the rough versus the fairway. And it's it's the entire game has now become kind of a second shot and on sport. The problem is that in so many cases, what is presented to guys after they hit their second shot tends to be a very one-note challenge. And where the setup is the same most weeks and they're chipping from the rough. And, you know, Peter Costas is saying, you won't believe how fast this putt's going to be afterwards. But at Shinnecock, if they have these shaved chipping areas and you're chipping onto those greens with those contours and that speed, I think that becomes an exponentially more interesting challenge than the idea of well, that's, that's where the skill really... I, I, like last year watching, Aaron Hills had those shaved runoff areas. And I, I'll never forget, I'm, I'm the biggest Lee Westwood fan in the world. And I saw Westy just out there with his putter. And I'm watching Patrick Reed chip in. Mm-hmm. And like it, Lee Westwood's just praying for a two-putt from off the green. like just, just praying for par. And Patrick Reed's in the short grass. He's thinking chip in every single time. And that... This short grass really allows the short game skill to just be, you know, the greatest short game players love short grass. And the guys that struggle, they can't stand short grass. They're just grabbing their putter. They're playing defensive. Yeah. And it's, I, I think this is going to be the first open really in a while that we see that. Aaron Hills, I don't think, offered as many options around the green or didn't demand as much of players around the green as as Shinnecock will. And in fairness to the USGA, that was the first open, to their credit, where they were relying upon the vagaries of the weather to help out. Now you see that in the Open Championship every year. It may be the only defence those courses actually have now. Any course on the Open Roga, its only defence is the weather. And last year the USGA was expecting wind and it never came, so it just they turned it into a pitch and putt course, those guys. And that's not going to happen at Chinnacock because they don't need the weather to really fire up the challenge on that golf course. And nor does Carnoustie. I mean, they'll probably get it at Carnoustie, but they don't need it there. And I don't think they need the weather either at Chinnacock. Who's going to win the US Open and who's going to win the Open Championship? Oh boy. Uh, Not Phil. I don't think Phil ever wins his Open at this stage. We've played 117 of these things, and the number that have been won by 47-year-old men is zero. And I keep hearing people... Especially ones that have a propensity to drive it poorly. Exactly. And, and that doesn't really set up. Now, you could also argue, does it balance out? Because Phil is pretty sharp around the greens with his creativity that having no shaved areas might actually keep Phil in the game a little bit longer if there's driver is a little bit wayward it's i think you just have to look at guys who've got a, a really good short game as odd as he's playing right now i wouldn't rule out jordan speak because he's got a the us open seems made for that kid because he's got a way of somehow in that old school fashion getting the ball in the hole there there's all kinds of ugly drama that goes along the way whether he's on the driving range at Burkdale or he's just hitting it all over the shop at Augusta National and getting it done. He figures out how to get the ball in the hole. Whereas you have a lot of guys out there with a lot of 
Pretty Horse Rain's a lot more confident, but when it comes crunch time on Sunday afternoon, their, their self-belief seems to waver quite a bit. And the US Open has a way of crunching guys' self-belief out of them. I can see Steve actually winning, despite his, his putting issues, because on greens like Shinnecock, everyone is going to put further by, by the standards of what they do on any given week. So the US Open has always kind of evened out the field, I think, in putting because it's such a challenge for everyone. Mm -hmm. And at Karnas, as they call it in Scotland, it's just a matter of, you know, who's going to be the most patient guy there is. You look at the, the last two Opens, there are two of the last three. You have Tom Watson in 75, you have Paul Laurie, Flinty Scotsman in 99, and Padraig Harrington in 2007. It's not an accident that those guys win at Carnegie Steel because when something goes wrong, they don't sit and pout and have histrionics like a lot of guys on tour do. So you're taking Bubba? I think Bubba will, should probably do this fight home with Friday afternoon now. And, but those guys, they're, you know, stoicism is a great trait to have in an open championship because they tend to put their head down and just try to barrel on through whatever the challenge or disappointment is they've just been hit with. And that's the kind of character I would expect to come out on top again this time around. Is Justin Rose a Hall of Famer already? No. No? I don't think anyone is in the Hall of Fame with one major championship. And I don't count Mon Monty's three senior majors as majors. If you have a title sponsor, you're not a major championship. All right, uh, let's get into some overrated, underrated here. Overrated, underrated, the performance of the winner of the 1998 Greater Vancouver Open, and this is from Lebron James. I suppose it depends on what category we are rating him over under. As a TV analyst, I think he's peerless. As a drinking companion, also peerless. As a nurturing golf coach, utterly lousy. Uh, but as a friend, pretty good. So I think it balances out on the positive side of the ledger for Mr. Shindley. Underrated. I think he's a, yeah, I would regard him as underrated, but he's also undersized, so it's appropriate. Swing demons. Which one? Just in general, are swing demons overrated or underrated? Well, with me, they are they're more overwhelming than anything else because I made the mistake about five years ago of attempting to get better and now I'm at the point where I almost no longer play. And Chambly has told me for years that I was uncoachable and I think I'm on the cusp of finally admitting that the little guy might actually be right. All right, overrated, underrated, shipping six irons. This is from Josh LaBelle. I think in general, it's an underrated skill, but when you were doing it yesterday on every damn hole in the sandbox, I thought it was a little overrated. I would have felt a little bit better about it if you'd at least worn shoes while you were doing it. Are golf shoes overrated or underrated? They're essential. They're neither underrated nor overrated. They just should be worn. No shoes, no service. All right, Eamon, it's been fun having you on. We'll uh, have to do something around one of these majors, but uh, thanks for coming on. People can uh, read your writing. What do you got coming up on Golf Week? i got to write something in the next couple of days. What it is, who knows how little you used to visit. <laughs> Maybe I'll write about my demons.
I'd like to know what they look like. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 